I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. And I want you to be honest with me. I'm not going to ask you for details, but I want you to be honest. By a show of hands, how many of you have been troubled by something this week? doesn't have to be something big. It can be something small. And I want you to keep your hands raised, and I want everybody to look around the room. Okay? Let's look at everybody. Wonder what they're troubled about. Don't let that distract you from the sermon today. Now let me ask you this. How many of you have been deeply troubled by something this week? How many of you have been troubled by something for a few days or even for the entire week? Raise your hand. Be honest. How many of y'all have had difficulty sleeping this week because of something at home or at work or something personal or something, a problem you have with somebody else that's, that's bothering you? Many have raised their hands this morning and many of you have noticed that there have been hands up all over the room. You know why? Because we are a troubled people. We're a troubled people. Because we live in a broken and fallen world as we've talked about time and time again in here, we have troubles, don't we? We have problems. How many of y'all are familiar with the song Trouble by Ray LaMontagne? Y'all know that song? It's a popular song. It really gets at this. In it are these lyrics. In the song are these lyrics. Trouble, he says. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Trouble has been dogging my soul since the day I was born. Worry, 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 worry just won't seem to leave my mind alone. We can relate to that, can't we? Yeah, because at times we have troubles. We have worries. We have difficulties. We are a troubled people. Encouraged yet? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. John 14. Today we are going to learn that we are not the only people who experience troubles. We're going to see that Jesus himself was troubled and so were his disciples. But we're also going to learn a key truth in chapter 14 as well. We're going to learn that though we all are a troubled people, Jesus is our comforter. Now that's a great truth, isn't it? Though we are troubled, Jesus is our comforter. And today, as we continue through the book of John in our sermon series entitled Knowing Jesus from John, we're going to talk about knowing Jesus as the comforter. And in the text we're going to look at today, we are going to discuss three ways in which Jesus comforts us. But before we do, let me set the stage for you once again, because it's been a while since we've been in John, hasn't it? Toward the end of May is where I stopped for Missions Month. And for those of you all who can remember back that far, you remember we're in John chapter 13. And remember I said entering into this chapter that we're opening, we're, we're, we're entering into a, a section in the Gospel of John. For the next five chapters, I said, from chapter 13 through chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, John gives us a detailed account 
of what took place just hours before Jesus' arrest and a day before his crucifixion. And remember I told you that this section of scripture is known as the upper room discourse. And in this section, in these five chapters, John spends a fourth of this book, 25% of this book, discussing the events in and around the upper room. And remember, we said that should tell us something, right? That should indicate to us that these events that happened just hours before Jesus' arrest and a day before his crucifixion are extremely important. In today's chapter, chapter 14, we see that just before Jesus' arrest, his disciples are deeply troubled. So Jesus takes some time here to comfort his disciples. Look at where we see this. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus begins this chapter by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And then look on down in verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So notice here that twice Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Why does he say that? It's not a trick question. It's because they're troubled. They're troubled. They're uneasy. They're worried. They're concerned. They were afraid. Now, why were they troubled? Why were they uneasy? To understand this, we have to go back to chapter 13. Flip back to chapter 13, if you have to flip it all, and look at verse 21. Look at what John tells us here. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Notice, first of all, that Jesus was troubled in spirit. So that's the first reason they're probably troubled, because Jesus is troubled. If you have a leader that you look to and you trust in and you're confident in, and he is troubled by something, chances are good that that is going to result in you being troubled as well. So that's probably one reason why they were concerned, why they were worried. Now, why is Jesus troubled? Well, he shares this with them here in this verse. He says, one of you will betray me. So first, Jesus is troubled because he's about to be betrayed, and he shares this with his disciples. And as a result, the disciples are troubled as well because for three years now, they have been together, and my guess is they've grown pretty tight. They feel as if they know each other pretty well. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them saying, one of you in the room is going to betray me. That would have been shocking news to them at that time. Though we often see pictures painted of Judas kind of in the shadows, you know, kind of looking sinister. You know, all that's in hindsight, looking back. They didn't know at the time. This would have been shocking news to them. If anyone else would have told them this, I, I think they, they would not have believed it. But because Jesus is trustworthy, they're bothered by this news. And, and later on in this chapter, Peter confesses his loyalty and his commitment to Jesus by telling him, Lord, not me. I'm going to be with you right by your side till the end. Even if I have to die, if I have to lay down my life, I'm not going anywhere. And then remember, Jesus drops another bombshell on the group, and especially a bombshell on Peter, 
And he says, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So it should be clear here why they were troubled, right? It's because their leader is troubled. They've just been informed that one is going to betray him and that Peter is going to deny him. And there's one more thing. Look at chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So not only does Jesus say, one of you is going to betray me, another one of you is going to deny me, but he also says here, I'm leaving you, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now think about that for a moment. The disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They had left their jobs, their families, everyone they loved, all they knew behind them to follow Jesus. He is their leader. He is their teacher. He is their Lord. Everywhere Jesus has gone, he's been, they have been with them every step of the way. And now he tells them, I'm leaving you and you cannot come with me. Now that had to, be, that had to have been devastating for them to hear, don't you think? I mean, they're about to have to say goodbye to their friend, to their leader. To their Lord. And many of us, to an extent, we know what this feels like, don't we? To lose someone we love, someone we look to, someone we confide in. That's troubling, isn't it? That hurts, doesn't it? This is what the disciples were experiencing. Not only were they witnessing their their leader going through it, being upset and troubled, but they're also told one is going to betray the Lord, Peter is going to deny him, and now they're told that Jesus is going to leave them. This is some troubling news, isn't it? But with that bad news comes some very good news in chapter 14. In chapter 14... Jesus lets his disciples know that though they're going to have some tough times ahead, he is their comforter. So what I want to do now is I want to share with you three comforting truths that we learn about Jesus from this chapter. The first thing we learn is this. Notice point number one. Though at times we feel abandoned, Jesus has not left us. Though at times we feel abandoned, Jesus has not left us. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So in the, in the previous chapter, Jesus says, I'm about to leave you. And here in chapter 14, he says, one of the reasons I'm leaving you is because I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, when we hear this, when we hear this in other verses like that, about Jesus going to prepare a place for us, what we often picture is Jesus with the hard hat on, with tools in his hand and a blueprint, going to build us a mansion on a hilltop, don't we? That's what we picture Jesus with the hard hat on, tools in hand, going to build us a home in glory like the gospel singers used to sing about. But no offense to them, I don't think that's to be the imagery here. 
When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what he's saying here is, I'm going to make a way for you. I am going to to provide a way for you to be with me and my Father. So though we often picture Jesus with a hard hat on, tools in his hand, a blueprint in hand, what we need to picture when we hear this is a crown of thorns on his head carrying a wooden cross. Because it's at the cross where Christ makes all the provisions, all the preparations needed for us to be made right with God. At the cross is where Christ accomplishes salvation for us. Notice what else Christ says here. At the end of verse 3, he says, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. So though Jesus is leaving them he gives them some great words of comfort here he says though i'm leaving i'm going to make preparations for you i'm going to accomplish salvation for you so that when i return i can take you to be with me where i am so jesus promises to return here notice verse 18 he says i will not leave you as orphans i will come to you Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Boy, there is some great promises and some great imagery that Jesus uses here. We get a good glimpse here, one, at how troubled the disciples were by Jesus leaving. They were like abandoned orphans. But Jesus comforts them and says, I'm not going to leave you in this state. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, there is some debate here on which return Jesus is referring to. Is he talking about the return after his resurrection? Is he talking about when he he returns in, in, in and through the Spirit and works through the Spirit at Pentecost? Or is he talking about his second coming sometime in the future? Well, there's there's a lot of debate on this. But here's the point. The point is this, Jesus is returning. Jesus is faithful to his followers. He's coming back in all of these ways, isn't he? Isn't he coming back? After he dies, he's resurrected before his ascension. He appears to them. He comes and works through the Spirit. And he's also coming back in the end. But the point here is Jesus is faithful to his followers and he's coming back to be with them. I recently heard a, a, a story about a professor from seminary and his wife who had adopted two boys from Russia. And he explained that when they went over there uh, to the first, for the first time to the orphanage, he said the place was just in shambles. It was in terrible sh- shape. He said the facilities were barely livable, smelled terrible, It was extremely dirty, and he said the most eerie thing about this orphanage was how quiet it was. Though the babies were awake, none of them were crying because they had been so severely neglected. I mean, when no one comes to you, when you cry, why cry, right? So he said there was just this awkward and eerie silence in this nursery. It was just this this dark and depressing place. But they went in and they chose these two baby boys that they were going to adopt. But the policy was that they could not take them home right away. So after choosing these two boys, they had to place them back in their beds. They had to return home and 
fill out this paperwork and wait for a period of time before they could return back to Russia to get their sons. And he, he later said, he was explaining this, and he said it was one of the hardest things he ever had to do was to leave those two boys who are now his in their beds and under those conditions. Well, this professor said this experience gave him a whole new appreciation for John 14. In fact, he said he quoted it to his baby boys as he placed them back in their beds. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here's the point. We feel like orphans at times, don't we? There are times when we're going through the darkest of trials and God seems distant. Seems as if he has, he has left us, doesn't it? All alone in the difficult of circumstances to deal with matters on our own. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're here. Maybe this is where you are. It could be something at work, something at home, something personal, something you're dealing with with somebody else, and you are, are in a dark place, and you feel as if God is distant, and you feel as if he has left you as an orphan on your own to deal with matters on your own. Let this point be of some comfort to you this morning. God tells us in his word that Jesus has not left us as orphans. He has come to us. He is with us. After his resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus promised his followers that he would be with them until the end. And folks, that promise extends to us today. Believers, we are not orphans. If you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, then you have been adopted into the family of God, and therefore you have Christ with you every step of the way, through the good times and the bad, through the pains and the joys, through the troubles and through the eases of this life. So if you're here this morning and you're just going through it, if you feel as if you've just been eaten up and spit out by the difficulties of life, I urge you this morning to be reminded of, rest in, and be comforted by the fact that Christ is with you every step of the way. And trust that He Himself is in control and that He holds everything in His hands, especially us, and know that He can be looked to and trusted and followed as the Good Comforter. Well, there's a second comforting truth about Jesus that we find in this chapter here, and it's this. Though we are troubled and needy, get this, Jesus is our provider. He is our provider. He provides all sorts of things for us, doesn't he? In the previous chapter, when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to leave them, they were troubled thinking that that was the worst thing ever. But Jesus here in chapter 14 informs them that by him leaving them, he is going to be able to make a greater provision for them. And in this chapter, chapter 14, John tells of several provisions that Jesus makes by leaving them. First, by leaving them, Jesus provides salvation for them. He provides salvation for them. Look at John 14, verses 5 through 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So Jesus has said that he's going away. He's returning to be with the Father, and Thomas is troubled by this news, so much so that he speaks up and he says, but, but Lord, we need you. How can we get along without you? We don't know the way. We don't know how to get to the Father. How can we get there if you leave us? And Jesus tells him, he says, Thomas, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus tells a very troubled and needy Thomas very clearly how to get to the Father. He says, Thomas, I am the way. And though I am leaving, I am going to accomplish salvation for you so that through me, you can be with me and my Father. So he's informing Thomas and the greater audience, his disciples here, once again, that though he's leaving, He's leaving to accomplish his work for them. He's going to make this provision for them. Thomas, you know, he addressed the problem that we all have. We're all in need of salvation, aren't we? And Jesus provides a solution here very clearly. He comforts his troubled disciple and the others by, by, by telling them that because he is, is going to the cross, because he's going to accomplish this work, salvation is going to be made available to them through him. So that's one thing that Jesus provides by leaving. He provides salvation. Another provision that Jesus provides by leaving that is a comfort to his disciples is this. He provides intercession. Intercession. Look at, look at verse 13. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus is comforting his disciples here once again by, by telling them, though I am going away, I am going to be your go-between. I'm going to be the one standing for you before the Father, making your prayers known to Him, and I'm going to be making things happen for you. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, does this mean that Jesus is our little genie in the bottle? who's just waiting to do whatever we say? Does this verse mean that if we tag in the name of Jesus onto any prayer that we'll get whatever we want? Is that what that's saying? No, get this. Praying in Jesus' name means this. It means to pray in a way that is consistent with the character and the will of Christ. Let me say that again. Praying in Jesus' name means to pray in a way that is consistent with the character and the will of Christ. And you ask, where do you get that? Well, look at 1 John 5.14 up on the screen. 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us according to his will. So Jesus is telling his disciples, though I'm leaving you, I'm going to be moving in a position where I can stand for you and intercede for you and make your request known to God. And he promises that if they pray in accordance to his character and will, God will hear them and hear their prayers and their prayers will be answered. So this is another important provision that Christ makes for them by him leaving them. So he provides salvation, he provides intercession, and number three, he provides divine assistance. 
By Christ leaving them, he provides them with divine assistance. Look at John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So Jesus says here, Though I'm leaving, it's important that I do so, so the Father can send you another helper to be with you forever. Now who is this other helper? He tells us, right, in verse 17, John tells us, even the Spirit of truth. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is another way in which Jesus provides for us and provides for his disciples by leaving them. Jesus says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to ask the Father, and he is going to give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, that word helper in the Greek is a very important word. Bear with me while I do a little, talk a little Greek, okay? That Greek word is the word paraclete. And you know what a paraclete is in Greek? You know what that means? It means someone who is called in to fight for you. That's what that word means. The best illustration I can think of when using this word is this. Imagine that you're in a courtroom and you're being accused of something and a lawyer comes in and he comes to your aid and he works for you and he fights for you and he defends you. That's what that word means. That's who the Holy Spirit is. That's what he does. That's why in many translations he's referred to as counselor. There's also great imagery here of a battlefield. Scripture is clear that we're in a war, right, folks? We are. And not just with flesh and blood, though we are, but also with principalities and powers, and the, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes in and he fights for us. The King James translated the word comforter, and a lot has been lost in that word over time. But in the Old English, that word was taken from the Latin word cum forte, which means with strength or with force. Now, when we think of comforter, we think I've been on the battlefield, I'm beat up, I'm weak, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I need someone to come in and comfort me and coddle me. But that's not what that word meant originally. It's not that the Holy Spirit comes and comforts us and coddles us and helps us lick our wounds after battle. The idea here is that the Spirit comes in the midst of battle and He comes with strength and with force so that we can stand strong and be victorious. He doesn't come after the battle is fought, but in the midst of battle to bring victory in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus' disciples would need going forward. Am I right? Now, notice in the text here that Jesus also says, the Father will give you another counselor. The word another suggests there's someone prior to the Holy Spirit. Am I right? Who's the first counselor? Who's the first paraclete? That's right, Jesus. Jesus is also our paraclete, our advocate, our comforter, our helper. And he says here, I'm going to be leaving you but I'm sending you another paraclete who is going to stand for you and fight for you and defend you. And he is also, notice, he's going to lead you in truth. John chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of what? Truth. He's referred to here as the spirit of of truth. Now flip over quickly to John 16, verse 13. We're going to be here in a couple of weeks, but, but look at what he, he says here about the Spirit. Jesus says, John 16, 13, 
When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So we see here, and Jim reminded of this last, uh, a little bit of this last week, but we see here one of the primary things that the Holy Spirit does. His primary purpose is He guides us, followers of Christ, into truth. He leads us into truth. I mean, let's be honest. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no truth, would there? To guide us. Because He's the one who has given us the Scriptures. The, the Bible, did you know this? is written by men who were taught by who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You know, it kills me when people think of the Holy Spirit as doing something unrelated to or disconnected from the Word of God. You know, I've had people in the past tell me, that the Spirit is calling for them to do something or to say something that goes against God's Word. And I often want to say, and at times I have said, no, He didn't tell you to do that or say that. Because God doesn't go against His Word, and what you're doing clearly does. If the Bible is written by men who are taught by the Holy Spirit, which we're told in Scripture that it is, then get this, the words of the Bible are the words of the Holy Spirit. So you want to be all about the Holy Spirit? Be all about the Bible. We're being all about the Holy Spirit this morning because we're being all about His Word. And also, because the words of the Bible are the words of the Holy Spirit, He doesn't act independently of or go against His Word. The Spirit leads us in truth, and He does this by His Word through the Bible. So for all those reasons and more, Jesus says what he does in John 16, verse 7. Look at it with me. This is an incredible verse. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As we've said already, the disciples were upset that Jesus was leaving. They were troubled by this. He was no longer going to be with them. Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God was leaving. But what does he say in verse 7 of chapter 16? He says, you're not going to be at a disadvantage by me leaving you. It is in fact good that I'm leaving you. And I'm sure many of them thought, yeah, right. You know, how can you be leaving be good for anybody? That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus goes on to explain. He says, because the Father is going to send you divine assistance. He is going to send you another who is like me, another paraclete who is going to come, another comforter who is going to come and fight for you. Jesus says, it's good that I return to the Father so that the Holy Spirit can come and continue my work and carry on and carry out God's plan. So that's also a, a great provision that Christ provides them by leaving. His leaving provides salvation, intercession, and divine assistance. Well, there's one more comforting truth about Christ that we learn here from this chapter, and it's this. Though we are weak, Jesus makes us strong. 
We've learned though at times we feel abandoned, Jesus has not left us. Though we are troubled and needy, Jesus is our provider. And here we learn, though we are weak, Jesus makes us strong. Look at verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus says to them, After I accomplish this work, for you, not only are you going to experience redemption, but you're going to continue my work. And not only that, notice the end of verse 12. Jesus says, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Jesus says, though you guys are, are weak-minded and, and feeble and are going to feel helpless without me, if you believe in me, you're going to be able to do greater works than I do because I am returning to the Father. Wow. What a statement. Now let me ask you this. How is that possible? How are the disciples and how are we able to do greater works? I mean, Jesus walked on water. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. What is he talking about here? Here's what he's saying. See, Jesus came with the message. And that message is John 14, 6, that we can be made right with God through him. And during Jesus' lifetime, that message barely moved beyond his disciples and didn't even leave the 30-mile region where they were. It was not until after Jesus accomplishes salvation at the cross and ascends to the Father and the Spirit of God comes down and continues the work through these disciples that this message begins to spread out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we're still witnessing this today, folks. Today, the gospel is spreading everywhere, and it's continuing to grow. Now, I know many on TV and, and on the news and in uh, uh, certain news articles, they're boasting about the fact that Christianity is on the decline in the U.S., and folks get real discouraged by that. But listen, Christianity is still spreading across this country, and you know what? It's booming worldwide more than it ever has before, and it will continue. It's what Christ said. That's exactly what's happening. Don't believe me. Go and look for yourself. So we're seeing Christ's words here in verse 12 being fulfilled this very day. This broken and fallen world is in the process of being restored and a broken and fallen people are in the process of being redeemed on a daily basis as the gospel is pushed out and as it advances. And that should not surprise us because that's what Jesus told us said, greater works than these will you do. And notice again, Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father, these things are going to happen. He comforts him once again, saying, though you think it's a bad thing that I'm leaving, it's actually a great thing. It's a necessary thing because by my leaving and accomplishing this work and returning to the Father, that is going to allow for this greater work to take place. That's why he says what he does in verse 28. Look at it. Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
Jesus says here, if you really loved me, if you really understood what I was up to, you would not have been troubled by me telling you that I'm leaving you, but you would have rejoiced. But instead, you're, you're anxious, you're troubled, you're worried, you're scared. But he says, if you really loved me, if you really knew what I was about, you would be rejoicing at the news of me leaving you. Why? Well, Jesus hints at it here and also explains throughout this chapter that though he is leaving, he is leaving by way of the cross. You see, through crucifixion, Jesus is going to do something for them that is greater than if he were to stay with them. You with me? See, the disciples were troubled, saying, Jesus, please don't go, you know? We want you to stay here with us. We don't want you to give your life up. But Jesus says, by me doing that, I'm going to accomplish salvation for you so that where I'm going, you can be also. You see, something many people fail to see about God and understand about the God of the Bible is that He is a God who delights in taking broken situations, painful situations, troubling situations, and restoring and redeeming them. The disciples failed to see this, but it's true. And the cross, folks, that's a prime example of this, isn't it? Because on the one hand, the cross is the worst event in human history. The cross is where we took the ultimate man, the God-man, the only truly innocent man to ever live, and we killed him. And that's terrible, isn't it? We took the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and we crucified him. So on the one hand, the cross is the worst event in human history, but on the other hand, get this, it's the greatest event in human history because through that event, through Christ's crucifixion, we're able to be made right with God. Through the cross, we're able to have our sins forgiven and be restored to a right relationship with the living God. So God takes the worst event in human history and he brings about the best possible good for us. And again, this is what God's all about. This is what he's in the business of doing. This is what he delights in doing. He delights in taking troubling situations, painful situations, broken situations, and redeeming them for good. He did that at the cross, and guess what, folks? He'll do that for you. He'll do that in your life. But for that to happen, you've got to give your life up. You got to give it up. You have to turn from what you want. You have to turn from your sin of rebellion, going at life on your own without God. And you have to turn and trust His Son for your salvation. You have to give your life up and you have to receive Christ as your Lord. And if you have not, I pray you would not leave here today without making that decision. Let's pray.